With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right. Welcome to the Rolling Thunder Review. I am Ben Mertens from Welcome to Loud City. Join me on the other line from Indy Cornrows. We have Caitlin Cooper. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing good. How are you? Got through Monday. Four more days to go. <laughs> so we are recording this on Monday before the Thunder play the Jazz and the Nets and before the uh, Pacers play the Knicks. So apologies if someone breaks their leg before during those games and we didn't know about it, but everyone should be healthy. Um, so, Caitlin, let's start with the Pacers, who are still, I believe, tied for third place in the East with the 76ers, despite Victor Oladipo going down nearly two months ago. How have they been able to keep it up? Well, their defense is still remarkably holding tight. You know, Oladipo is an all-NBA defender, but they still have standout individuals and Miles Turner with his rim protection. He's blocking every shot in sight. And then Thad's just this malleable guy on defense that you can put on people like Giannis and Ben Simmons down to, you know, guarding post players like Carl Anthony Towns. And and they have Corey Joseph, too, that really can pressure the point of attack. But their rotations are just really seamless. So the defense is holding tight. And then Bogdanovich, I think it's really been the key because even on much higher usage in the absence of Oladipo, he's, he's attempting more free throws, higher, more field goal attempts, more threes, and his efficiency is still right where it was even when he was on lower volume. And Thad, he just has, this season's just been a lot more all-around game from him. Like, if you look back, I was shocked by this number when I looked at it today. Post-All-Star break last year to January 1st of this year, he shot 29% from outside of eight feet. And here in this stretch, since Oladipo's been out, he's shooting 39% from three. And his three-point range was really already kind of going up. That's tapered off a little bit the last three games. And then, you know, Darren Collison's an all-around efficient guy. And Sabonis has been playing like a six-man-of-the-year candidate pretty much for the whole year. And they just get a lot of scoring from a lot of different areas. And then, if we're going to be honest, they've also had a little bit of a soft schedule here up until this point where they're basically – like in a murderer's row of playoff contenders. But in the aftermath of Victor going out, they had, they faced, you know, the Pelicans who were dealing with trade turmoil, the Lakers who were dealing with trade turmoil, a Clippers team that was really depleted post trade deadline in the immediate, like the day after or the day of the trade deadline, I mean, and then Mm -hmm. like the Cavs in Charlotte. So they were able to rattle off six straight wins after a brief little skid, really honing in against a bit of a softer schedule. So. Yeah, I mean, pretty crazy that they're still tied for third this deep into the season. Yeah, so if you throw out, so the right after Oladipo went down, they lost four in a row, including this like blowout, blowout loss to the Warriors. Since that four games get ended, they're ten and six. Their net ratings plus four. It was like plus six with Oladipo, so a slight downturn, but still a really good team, which I think surprised a lot of people. But if you're actually watching the Pacers play, they weren't entirely dependent on Oladipo, um, even. Not that they were entirely dependent on him last year either, but they were less dependent on him, I thought, this year than last year just because those other players have stepped up. They always do play a team brand of basketball with a lot of swinging side to side, a lot of handoffs, um, a lot of off-ball stuff. And Oladipo is still good this year. He was an all-star in the East again, but his shooting was down this year. He was still like a good player and I would say still their best offensive player, um, but his field goal percentage was only like 
down to, was down to 42% this year. His true shooting was the lowest it had been since his rookie season. Again, he's still like a great defensive player and kind of the straw that stirs the whole drink and makes everything run, but they're clearly still able to generate a pretty good offense without him just because they don't have a single bad player, I think is the biggest thing. Right. Um, so we've got the five starters, Collison, uh, Bogdanovich, Thad Young, Miles Turner. The one person we didn't talk about already was Wesley Matthews, who they did pick up on the bio market. A lot of teams, including the Thunder, were interested in him. How has he been playing during this stretch, and what's he brought to the team? Right, you know, that's kind of interesting because he and Oladipo are like polar opposite players. I mean, so much of Oladipo's game is based on his speed and the way he can explode past defenders if they drop back or if they go under a screen. And Wesley Matthews is really about his movement off the ball and what he does as a post-up guy. So it was going to be interesting how that fit in. But some of the sets Dallas ran are really similar to some of the stuff that the Pacers run with Bogdanovich and McDermott. So that was fairly fairly seamless. And so that and then just what he brings it from a defensive standpoint that they weren't really going to get from – Tyreek Evans, if he filled in as the starter with in place of Victor, or you know, if they went with a smaller tandem with Darren and Corey, he can he can defend across multiple positions, and he's also a good leadership presence. So that's been a good addition for the Pacers down here down the stretch. Yeah, I think always the thing when losing a star player, even injury, or just when a star player goes to the bench, is having someone who can at least fill their role, even if it's a different style. Which I mean, the Thunder have that problem this year. When Paul George goes to the bench, they don't actually have another real NBA caliber small forward on the roster, and that's why, obviously, Paul George is a really good player. So you're always going to be worse when he's off the court than on. But when he goes off, there's just not a real small forward to take his spot, and you feel that when they're playing without him. So I think for the Pacers, you know, Tyreek is kind of a two, maybe a three, but he just also has kind of not had a great season. And then Corey Joseph and Collison as a duo are a little small to play the two. Um, so having Wes Matthews would kind of seamlessly fill that Oladipo role, I think, is great for them. And then beyond that starting five, uh, of course, Oladipo and Paul George were swapped for each other in that trade from the Thunder and the Pacers um, almost two years ago at this point. The other person involved in that trade was DeMontis Sabonis, who I think you said a couple of minutes ago has played like a six-man-of-the-year candidate. But go a little more in-depth about his season so far and kind of what you see as his future with this team, because he'll be up for a big contract soon. He kind of plays the same position as Miles Turner. Miles Turner excuse me. So just what's going, what's going to happen with that? Well, what's really interesting with him is just all that he's able to accomplish when he averages less than 25 minutes a game because yeah. he doesn't spread the floor really that much. I mean, sometimes he'll get a pick-and-pop attempt at the elbow if he gets the ball back there, and he, and he doesn't really play that much above the rim, yet he's seventh in the league in field goal percentage. He's really close to averaging a double-double. And the, this stat blows me away every time I look at it. He leads the Pacers and touches and passes per game, and he's the only player in the NBA that's doing that in less than 25 minutes per game, and he only shoots on 14% of his touches. So his fingerprints are, like, all over the Pacers' offense with what he does out of dribble handoffs from the elbows or just working in the short roll, but he also doesn't dominate the ball. He just really is a connector that just greases the gears of what they do there. He's super important, and you've kind of seen that the last several games. He had an ankle injury, and... They have the highest bench net rating in the NBA, and that was right at a net negative in those games that he was out. He just brings that scoring punch because their depth is so important to what they do as a balanced attack. And, yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head with saying that he plays the same position as Miles. That's the way that Nate McMillan sees it. He sees them both as centers. And that in those minutes, they don't play very much at all together because Nate doesn't really see that as a, a great lineup for the team. That's what he said going into the season. Mm -hmm. They're a net positive, but a lot of that's because it's being propped up by their defensive rating because their defense is pretty 
pretty solid no matter what lineups they have out there, and they do a lot with rotations that shield them from getting beat really bad on, on closeouts because they so good whenever people drive into rotations. But their offense is still scoring less than a point per possession. So, you know, that's pretty frustrating. They don't do – it's it's pretty evident that it's an afterthought at the end of the first and third quarter when they're both out there in really short bursts of minutes that they don't really have sets that are just designed for the two of them to be acting off of each other. And, you know, maybe if there was a little bit more development in that regard, you might see that be a little bit stronger lineup for the team. But long-term, unless Kevin Pritchard really gets a deal there, Sabonis just really wants to stay with the Pacers and ends up taking less money, I would expect that long-term that – they'll end up that he'll end up signing a decent offer sheet with another team going into restricted free agency. But that that's just the way I just don't think that they can pay two players that much money if they're not going to play over 30 minutes per game and they're not going to be able to play on the floor together for long bursts against, you know, starting caliber lineups. Yeah, which is a bummer because I always, Sabonis, he only played one year in Oklahoma City, which was his rookie season and the Russell Westbrook triple-double tour. And they did not use him right at all because they weren't interested in really bringing along a rookie. They were putting the ball in Russ's hands and saying, go crazy. He went out, he won MVP, and it wasn't sustainable long-term. It was a fun ride while it happened, but you saw like they were just having Sabonis stand in the corner or above the break for most of that season and just shoot threes, which is not his game at all. Um, and the Pacers, I've really liked how they've used him. It is a bummer to me that him and Turner can't really coexist, at least haven't successfully coexisted yet to their point. To your point, they are really good on defense together. They're 90th, 7th percentile on defense when those two play together, but only 10th percentile on offense. It's quite bad when they play together as an offensive unit. And to your point, it's not like they're running a lot of... When those guys are out there together, they're not running sets specifically designed. Okay, we have two big men, one who's a really good high post passer, the other who's a big rim presence. They're just kind of running the same stuff they normally run with those two guys out there. So, of course, it doesn't look that great, but... Even if Sabonis does go on to another team or if he stays but is more of a six-man, how how did you view that trade at the time, the Paul George for Victor Oladipo and Sabonis swap at the time? And then obviously now I'm sure your opinion of it is higher than it was then. But like when, when was the moment where you're like, oh, this was a really good trade for us? Yeah, right. So there's kind of two things that stick out in my head. I mean, I have to be honest. I, I watched that OKC Houston series and Victor was – you know, pretty bad there. He attempt there was like three games where he didn't even get a free throw attempt. He shoots yep. 24% from three. Like it, it was rough. Right. So a little after that happens, the trade happens and he plays in this NBA Africa game exhibition wise. And he shoots like four of 14 from three and he doesn't attempt a free throw or he attempts like two free throws, I think. And I'm just thinking this is the forecast of the future. Like he's just going to be this high usage, inefficient guy that's going to be taking up all these possessions because they even had a conversation at his like introductory press conference where he was talking about, well, you know, I'm getting my usage is sure to go up, you know, after not playing with Westbrook anymore. And then I remember my first like eye opening thing, ironically, was when they played the Thunder and Andre Robertson's guarding him and they run a dribble handoff and Robertson goes under because Victor had been getting to the rim so easily and Victor was still able to beat him to the spot, even when he was going under the screen and just the way that his body transformation his he paired skill with the agility that he gained from what all of his workouts over the summer. And he's just, you know, he's whizzing past bigs who are dropping way deep into the paint. He's beating guys to their spot when they duck under screens. And then obviously he shot the three a lot better last year than what he's done so far this season, but just this pull up three and the way he was putting pressure on guys and defensively. And then, I mean, 
Yeah, and, and transition. And then defensively, what he was doing, you know, he can roam and he can still make it back to three-point shooters because of his closing speed. It was just very eye-opening. Yeah, when the trade went down, I honestly was like, "That's this is great for us. We get Paul George. Oladipo is, was a fine player for us who I liked, but I thought he was overpaid. And Sabonis was like a nice prospect who I was a little bummed to lose, but the Thunder weren't going to use him right because they're always going to run their offense through Westbrook, who has never really played with a passing big man. And then... Two months into the season, um, as the Thunder were kind of struggling to integrate Paul George and Carmelo Anthony, and Oladipo was blowing up in Indiana, I'm like, hmm, that trade might have not have gone our way after all. It ended up going both teams' ways because Paul George resigned. Um, Indiana got their star player out of it and a pretty good piece in Sabonis. So everybody kind of won that deal, which is a nice thing that you don't often get to say about NBA trades. But it is interesting how differently that's looked at now than it was you know, the day after it happened when people were rushing to get those trade-grade columns up. Um, so let's get into this actual game that's going to be played on Thursday instead of this kind of big picture stuff. So we've talked about the starting five and Samos come off the bench. What kind of less famous or less well-known player on Indiana could be kind of a difference maker in this one who the Thunder should be looking out for? Well, I think a lot of it's just going to come down to, I mean, Bogdanovich is kind of the fulcrum at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're still a balanced attack, but he's their number one offensive player. So, you know. I, I, I'm kind of going to be interested to see how these matchups work because I don't think that you really want Bogdanovich to be guarding Paul George when he's already going to be being guarded by Paul George, if that makes sense. I mean, right. that's a lot of double dipping there to have to be dealing with a potential defensive player of the year guarding you, and then you're having to do the same on the other end of the floor, even though you know, I know Paul George has been kind of slumping here lately since the All-Star break and the injury, but... The injury and just, you know, dating back to Indiana, as I'm sure the Indiana fans know, he just, Paul George occasionally just has months where he just doesn't shoot the ball that well. He's like, you can't really call him a streaky shooter because he's, you know, too elite of a player for that label, but he does have months where just the three ball goes away for whatever reason. Yeah, it it was rough the end of the 2013-14 season. He had a very prolonged uh, slump, or skid, maybe we should call it. Skid, yeah, I think that's, once it's past like a week or two, it's a skid, not a slump. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Um, Bogd- I Certainly the Thunder will stick Paul George on Bogdanovich when the Thunder are on defense and OKC's on offense, and they are running more stuff through Bogdanovich, but the Pacers are such a good side-to-side moving team that my biggest concern with Oklahoma City's defense against the Pacers' offense is just people off the ball can't fall asleep, which Oklahoma City's defense was elite for the first two months of this season. It's kind of dipped to slightly above average over the last month. The one thing that occasionally does still happen is just Russell and, to a lesser extent, guys like Terrence Ferguson just kind of not Terrence Ferguson, excuse me, Jeremiah Grant, will fall asleep off the ball a bit, and the Pacers are too good at that, and they do a lot of overlapping screens and things like that and rushing from one side of the court to the other, and the Thunder just have to keep up with that and not just be focused on the point of attack. The other thing I'm curious about defensively is the Thunder love to um, to blitz, pick, and roll. Yes, and, that's what I was going to say. That yeah. using, Ad- using Steven Adams to hedge up top, that's going to, you know, Miles is going to be open in the pick and roll. And then if, if they're good at taking away middle penetration and bring those help defenders over, is Miles going to be prepared to be a playmaker in four on three situations? And, you know, Sabonis is a little bit more apt at that. He's great at slipping into space. He's great at making reads. But then if you're playing Sabonis more minutes, you're sacrificing Miles' rim protection against, you know, the Westbrook Adams pick and roll on the other end of the floor. So that's definitely something to watch too. Right. And then the reverse of that is when, is what Turner can do on offense against Adams, which is they run a ton of pick and pop with Turner, um, which if you pull Steven Adams away from the rim, he's, he's 
not great at defending in space, even against other big men, particularly quicker ones, but also if you're pulling him 25 feet from the rim to defend that three ball on those pick and pops, he's not there to grab rebounds, which is where you want him. Um, he, you know, his defensive rebound rate is quite low, but he's so good at boxing out that the team's rebounding rate is really good when he's on the court. If you're able to pull him away from the basket, then suddenly it becomes Jeremiah Grant versus Thad Young for the board or whoever else is down low. So yeah, and the Thunder always blitz the pick and roll even when the ball handler isn't you know, what I would call the biggest threat. Like, I think Darren Collison and Corey Joseph are fine players. I'm okay with them launching off the dribble threes out of the pick and roll. If the, the Pacers beat us that way, like, you tip your cap to them because they beat you with the shots that you're okay with them taking. But when the Thunder come up and trap that um, to take away what's not that great of a threat of a play, it does open up those four on threes, to your point, which I'll be interested to see how Turner handles that. And I think Sabonis will handle it very well, but it's a four on three. I think even Turner could handle it quite well. Um, and when he's barreling down to the rim, that four on three, Jeremiah Grant is the one sliding over to play help defense. And Grant is good at drawing charges um, and blocks, but he's not like the level of rim protector that Adams or Nerlens Noel are. So Turner's probably strong enough to finish around him at the rim. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, and that, yeah, on the other end, you know, the Pacers are a pretty traditional drop coverage, so I would expect that the Miles did get caught. I mean, Stephen Adams kind of feasted against the Pacers last year. Miles got caught coming out too high a couple times. I'd like to see them have him drop a little bit deeper, and you know, have Westbrook shooting some of those mid-range shots. And some of that was a product of Darren Collison's rearview pursuit. It can be sort of pokey. So I'll be interested to see if they slide Wesley Matthews over into that position and see if he can stick with Westbrook a little bit better than Darren Collison, let Darren Collison guard Ferguson, but we shall see. Yeah, Westbrook, I mean, he's shot the three ball better by his standard, which is still below average, but better by his standard since the all-star break. But any defense is going to be okay with him launching threes off the dribble or launching those mid-rangers off the dribble. And if you can goad him into that with that kind of drop coverage, that's certainly the way to go, especially if Collison or even um, a bigger guy is pestering him from behind. He does love, if he feels the contact on his back, he'll try to foul, draw, and kick his legs out, which the officials don't fall for very often. Um, when it's Paul George running the pick and roll, obviously, if you drop too low, he will launch those threes and he will actually hit them uh, unless he's, you know, he's not shot the three ball well over the last five or six games since coming back from injury. It was a shoulder injury, so I'm not surprised that his shooting's dipped. But he has been very good, even as that three ball hasn't been there, at fighting to the rim. I think this has been Paul George's best season at getting to the rim and drawing fouls and things like that. So when they beat the, uh, the Trailblazers last week, he shot one of nine from three, but he ended up drawing 20 uh, three-throw attempts because he was just fighting his way to the rim because the deep ball wasn't dropping and drew a ton of fouls inside from Nurkic. And I think... If you play the drop card and he gets ahead of steam, he's going to be able to get a lot of three throws again or maybe just finish. But Turner's a really good rim protector, and I think all, all things being equal, you would rather have Paul George try to finish over you at the rim than launch a wide-open three. He's injured now, so maybe you feel a little better about the three. But I think that might be kind of the deciding thing as far as how good the Thunder's offense can be is when George and Westbrook are able to get into the lane, how good is Miles Turner as a rim protector? Because he's been great this year. 
Um, I've heard even a little DPOI buzz for him. That's how big the improvement has been. So the Thunder need to actually you know, either get him to commit fouls or actually be able to finish around him. And then when he is out and Sabonis is in the game, Sabonis is obviously not the same level of rim protector, and that's where you would like to see the Thunder generate a ton of offense. Kind of interested, too, with how they're going to use, just for all the reasons you just said, you know, what do you do with that in this situation? Because Mm -hmm. they've been able, Miles' development, what he did over the summer, he can drop at a variety of depths based on the opponent. He's been a lot better at that this year than he was a year ago as far as moving more fluidly and being, you know, more vigilant of who the ball handler is and where he needs to be. So, but a lot of that is also because of Thad. Thad's such a great tagger. He's very strong in those coverages, so... Are you going to have Thad go hard, Paul George, so that you know Bogdanovich can have preserve some energy here? Or you, if you do that though, then Bogdanovich is going to be the person tagging off of Grant. So Thad is better at that than than Bogdanovich is. So that could be a little bit sticky. And I did see that Grant's actually shooting the three the best out of anybody post All Star break. So yeah, he got that was you know. Jeremiah Grant has always been as a player. It's like good defender, rangy, quick guy, switchable, one through five, offensive game. Is he going to be able to ever figure out the three ball? And to his immense credit this year, he has shot the three ball extremely well. I think on a team where Paul George and Russell Westbrook are there, teams are always going to continue, no matter how well Grant shoots it, to send help away from him and just say, hey, we know you've shot well this year. We're still gonna, we still want to see you beat us, especially as once it gets to the playoffs, it's going to be the same thing. Him and Terrence Ferguson are going to get left so that they can, teams can barricade the lane against George and Westbrook, and the Thunder season might come down to if Grant is able to shoot the three ball in the playoffs as well as he has in the regular season. I mean, sometimes it really is that simple. Just, just going back to another thing you said, just watching Paul George be able to get to where he wants to go on the floor has been fun as a person who watched him all those years in Indiana, watch his development as a ball handler with the Thunder. And I mean, what he's doing when he snakes his dribble, how patient he is, the way he's threading it back between his legs against smaller defenders to shield the ball. Like you just would not have seen that early in his career in Indiana. His handle was so loose. Like every time he would split a screen, it was a misadventure. So that that's just been something I've enjoyed. Yeah. There's been talk that he should, you know, you would never give most improved to a player, of this caliber who was already an all-star before, but like if you're just saying the award is the most improved player in the NBA, it could be Paul George because he's doing, he's scoring way more than he ever did before. Kept up the same level of defense. He's a little better as a playmaker this year than he's been in the past. And just the way he's doing it is stuff he didn't do in the past. Um, He shoots deeper contested threes than he did before. And the handle is, is quite good. And he was even last year, like not a guy you wanted trying to take, um, too many defenders off the dribble. If he, he was able to catch the ball off the pass with a guy on his back, awesome, take it in. But now he's just able to break down guys one-on-one or run a very good pick and roll and split the defenders, to your point. Um, how good, I mean, did you ever expect Paul George to reach this level of player when he was playing in Indiana? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I saw his handle developing the way that it has. That's mm-hmm. a number one, but it's kind of interesting in this space here that I remember thinking in the 2013-14 season, which is going to seem obvious because Kevin Durant won MVP, but you know, if you could have replaced Paul George with Kevin Durant on that Indiana team, you would have felt really comfortable with the Pacers being able to beat the Miami Heat and and those Eastern Conference final series and back-to-back years. Like you just wanted Paul George to take, you know, another step that it would be closer because just because of the way Kevin Durant could get where he wanted to be. And sometimes Paul George's handle limited him that way, or he would go through rough, those rough skids that we talked about earlier, where it was just like, you just needed that extra spot. And you know what this 
X percent better, I guess I should say. And to watch him this year where he's actually putting up numbers here, at least prior to the all-star break and the injury, I mean, his numbers were pretty comparable to what Kevin Durant did that season. And if you would have asked me that in 2013-14, I would have said no. Like, Paul George is a really good player, and ideally he's an offensive finisher coming off screens, and he's the second best player on on a good team. And for him to be the best player on a, on a really good team this year and be putting up numbers that are fairly similar to Kevin Durant's MVP season, that's just crazy. Yeah, the flip has been so remarkable because when he was brought in, the talk was, oh, this is a great fit for Paul George because he does need to be the second best or at least the 1B to like a really good primary ball handler. Russell Westbrook is, of course, that. You know, he, you want to play him next to a Westbrook, a LeBron, a James Harden who's going to handle the ball a lot. Paul George will operate off the ball. He'll be the play finisher, the secondary guy. He'll anchor the defense. This is going to be great for him. And then that was the way it played out last year. You know, Westbrook took more shots than him and was the offensive focal point, and the Thunder just never really figured it out last year. This year, it's completely flipped. George leads the team in shots. He has the same, uh, I think now even a higher usage rate than Westbrook. It's very close. Um, and he's just doing... You know, Westbrook is helping him. He's obviously leading the league in assists, and George does a lot off the ball, but George is able to create for himself on the ball, and Westbrook has taken more of that secondary role, which is not what anyone, I think, expected when he first made his way to Oklahoma City, and it's obviously worked out great for the Thunder. Um, anything else in this particular game on Thursday night that we need to watch out for? No, I think, I think we covered it. All right, uh, last thing before we get out of here. The Pacers are currently, like we said at the top, fourth tied with the Sixers, so third in the East. Where are you hoping they'll finish in the playoffs? Like, who would be the ideal round one matchup for the Pacers? Yeah, I get asked that a lot, and I know for a fact that my least option here is the Sixers. Like, I don't okay. know if you watched that. I did catch the game on yeah on Sunday where the, it was close okay, until the fourth, and the Sixers just ran away with it at the end of the game. Yeah, I think. and the... the Miles Turner guarding Embiid on one end and being guarded by Ben Simmons on the other is is a dynamic that the Pacers have yet to figure out. The Pacers are very um, struggling a lot against switching defenses without Oladipo. They don't have an isolation score, and it takes them so long to – they, I always refer to it this way. They think out loud a lot against switches and have to play late into the shot clock. They don't have a lot of options there. And when Ben Simmons guards Miles, they don't want to use Miles as the screener because they don't want Ben Simmons to switch onto the ball. Right. So they'll just they'll be thinking and and you know going through these mismatches and then on the other end, Embiid's just like turning him into tissue paper. So. Yeah, that's a very bad matchup. I mean, I don't really, if I'm being completely honest with the way they've looked over the last, like, seven or so games and how they matched up with Detroit here recently, I don't really feel great against Philly, Boston, or Detroit, but I think there's a little bit more options they have against Boston than they do against the Sixers, which is probably my guess is that's who they'll play. They'll either be in the fourth or the fifth spot, probably even fifth given what their schedule is, and they'll be playing Boston on the road. It's interesting, yeah, there's a weird, like, kind of rock, paper, scissors effect where the Celtics, I think, on paper, I mean, excuse me, not on paper, the Celtics are, own the matchup against the Sixers for matchup reasons, So, but would be the, but I think the Pacers would much prefer to play the Celtics than the Sixers because they just match up better with them. It's just these rosters are constructed completely differently, so even if the Celtics are able to dominate the Sixers in that particular matchup doesn't mean a team is more scared of Boston than Philadelphia, and in the Pacers' case, it would be the opposite. All right, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on, and we'll see how this game goes on Thursday night and see how both of these teams fare the rest of this season. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, take it easy.